just to begin uh, with a brief introduction, um, the reason we've invited Tim to the Silicon Valley Speechwriters Roundtable, which is the meeting we're holding. It's a virtual meeting like we, they all are, as there's no easy place to meet in Silicon Valley. We have people calling in from all over the country and some internationally as well, which is great. Um, it's because Tim's book has just been published it's called The Compelling Communicator, Mastering the Art and Science of Exceptional Presentation Design. And Tim Pollard is the founder and CEO of Arateum, his company, and has designed and delivered thousands of complex presentations to boards, national conferences, and executive committees, never seek, stopping to uh, seeking to understand and capture the underlying science of extraordinary communications. And this journey led to the development of the unique set of tools and processes in the, in the book, The Compelling Communicator. So, Tim, um, one thing that will become immediately apparent to everybody when you say hello is that we happen coincidentally to be both from United Kingdom, yeah. uh, and, uh, but you live now in Billings, Montana, is that correct? <clears throat> yes, excuse me. Yeah, I've been in the States uh, just over 20 years, spent about half of the time in the East Coast in Washington, D.C. with a company called the Corporate Executive Board. Did a lot of work, actually, funnily enough, when I ran the sales and marketing practice there. A lot of work with companies like Cisco, so I know Brian on the call and others from there. Um, and then moved to Billings, Montana uh, to take a little break from the corporate madness and work for a non-profit that taught conflict resolution, believe it or not. But then when that, that sort of came to an end, I had this 20-year journey uh, which sort of fulfilled in starting the company, um, Aratium, and uh, building that company over you know, several four or five years and then writing the book last year. So we stayed in Montana. It's not the most convenient place, but it's a great place to come home to. When you finally get off the plane, it's uh, a lot of space and green and water, which is uh, not so common everywhere anymore. And just to, I mean, this is sort of putting the cart before the horse in a way, but you did mention you have, I think I mispronounced it, you said Aratium. Is that mm -hmm. how you pronounce it? Um, uh, so yeah, Aratium. It's actually the same root as orator and oratory, words you'd be familiar yep. with. It's a less known word. It's actually Latin for an oral argument. Mm. Um, in England, it's used actually in universities when you essentially do a defense of a dissertation. That is sometimes called your Aratium. So it is your oral defense of an argument. Um, probably on reflection, I wouldn't have picked that name. I've heard oratorium, oratium, 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 iridium. I think people think we make satellites. It's, it's crazy. But you know what? It's sort of a little too late to change now, so I'm okay with it. But for those interested, presumably, like companies like Cisco, if Brian, who's on the phone, has is, is got a project that he would like to contact you about, uh, is there aratium.com? Is that how Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can go to aratium.com. You can see our uh, uh, basic outline of the three things we do, executive communications, uh, sales messaging is about 70% of what we do. About 30% of what we do is um, executive communication skills and TED speaker training. And then a little bit less actually sort of rolled into the sales messaging is we do quite a lot of donor messaging now. Um, the model that we have built and teach is exceptionally useful for uh, donor development work in the nonprofit space. So if any of you go to Chicago and see the very recently opened American Writers Museum, that was one of our recent projects to do the, the donor messaging for those guys. And also, I mean, I'm very happy just to take an email directly. Uh, we are small enough to be on a first name email basis, so it's just uh, tim at aratium.com. There's a different right. email in the book because other people monitor that, but I'm very happy for you guys if you want to write to me at tim at aratium.com. That's perfectly fine. Okay. Well, that's great. We, we'll touch on that maybe a little more later on. People might have questions. But we titled this conversation with the Silicon Valley speechwriters, Fail-Proofing Communications. What, can you explain what you mean by fail-proofing? Um, it's interesting. If you back up, I mean, the reason I'm sure your forum exists and the reason anybody even talks about this ever is most communication fails. Um, there's some data in the book that you might have come across, but it's striking, really. Um, if you just look in the sales train, an area where communication is, is so pivotal to success, it's a very interesting laboratory for understanding communications. 
companies self-assess the, the quality of the products they have, the quality of the solutions they sell on a 1 to 10 scale and 8.1 out of 10. And these are clients we work with and other companies we've spoken to. These are, these are great companies. That's not an unrealistic evaluation. Companies like Disney, Nike, Emerson, you know, LinkedIn, Salesforce, GM. These are great companies. But when you ask them to self-assess how well they tell the story of that, of that solution, how well they articulate it, how well they design and execute on the presentations they make to customers, which I would argue are some of the most commercially critical communications we have to get right, they, they, the number drops to a 3.9 out of 10, and that's a very consistent number. There's this big gap between the quality of the solution and the quality of the story we tell around the solution. Mirrored by data that you see in the leadership communication space, we, we run a bunch of ongoing surveys with clients, and the data we have here is reflective of the data we've all seen from lots of different sources, typically only about 20 to 25 of presentations that people attend in a year are viewed as good or better, uh, about 70 to 75% are mediocre or worse. And typically there's a full third, if you think of a five-point scale of terrible, poor, okay, good, excellent. Um, it's very typical that about 25 to 35, 25 to 31% um, rate the present, you know, sorry, 25 to 31% of the presentations people attend are rated as really poor or terrible. And that's tragic, right? Because behind each one of those is a human story. There was some executive pitching for a budget, pitching for a project to be approved, pitching for funding for uh, an initiative, you know, trying to get their team to buy into uh, a difficult season of change. I mean, there, was, there were important outcomes that were at stake. And yet only one in four times... Uh, do we seem to get it right? And it's real, really paradoxical because um, can you think of any other aspect of business life where one in four success rate would be okay? We'd be bankrupt if that was our, our quality performance or our safety performance or our legal <laughs> adherence. But, I mean, there's nowhere else in business where you could fail you know, three out of four times, and yet that continues to happen in the communication space. And our contention, and I think it's very much borne out by the results that our clients see, and I think you see in the book the scientific underpinning of this, um, you can fail-proof communications. You can create communications that uh, are, I mean, I guess there's no such thing as an absolute guarantee. It depends on other factors on the day, but, but that have a um, uh, you know, substantially higher likelihood of achieving the outcome they're meant to achieve. We have a client uh, documented on our website where they had a sales message for a particularly interesting, fairly technical solution. Um, they are a technology company, but not in the, the modern high-tech sense. They're in the technology that supports grid reliability, the electricity grid. Um, this sales message had about a 15, 17% conversion rate. In other words, they tell the story to the customers, and when all said and done, about 15% of the pursuits became sales. Following the redesign of that message using our model, it moved to a 94% conversion rate. And the reason was this solution is just so compelling. The thing it does is so amazing, and yet nobody could understand what it did um, because the story was buried in a dense, convoluted, illogical narrative wrapped into a load of PowerPoint slides and fronted by a load of pictures of buildings and mission, vision, and values and credentials and all the stuff we think is so important and that doesn't matter at all. And what we believe is when you, when you align a message properly adhering to the principles we'll talk about in the next half hour, you can get it to the point of pretty close, if not absolutely fail-proof. And that's a fairly bold assertion, but it's not one I have the slightest hesitation in making. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and I think what you say about, I think one of the distinguishing features of communications in Silicon Valley, as opposed to like the Washington DC speechwriters roundtable, who some of us meet at the Reagan conference from speechwriting mm -hmm. that's held there, is they do this kind of speeches you see, you know, politicians and such like give, which is pure speeches, you know, like Martin mm -hmm. Luther King gave, like people gave, like the Gettysburg Address. I think yeah. here in Silicon Valley, we're tied for better or for worse to PowerPoint and what you say about PowerPoint is obviously got a long history of critique starting with people like Edward Tufte um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. you also I was grabbed in the first page or two of the book by this prologue where you took you you have a not too subtle 
way of critiquing that whole presentation skills focus, which I've yeah. taken classes in corporate America, you know, where they teach you to, one, one organization had this catchphrase, touch, turn, talk, to touch the slide, turn towards the audience, you know, keep your hands <laughs> at the side. And, and I you love talk it. About I mean, that's why we have a successful company because there's such moronic stuff out there. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, I've, I've come across several of these. Uh, what was the one I remembered recently? Uh, it was it was if you forget what you're going to say. Oh, it's called sneaker peek. You forget what you're going to say. Walk from one side of the stage to the other. Glance back at the bullet on the screen to remind yourself what you were going to say. And as you get to the other side of the screen, start talking again. I mean, the intellectual flaws in that idea, there's about 10 of them. Like, shouldn't you actually know what you're going to say? Shouldn't you actually possibly have notes? And why have you got the bullets on the screen anyway? So in other words, you're using the screen to support your inadequacies and failure to prepare. And they're selling this stuff. They're like, oh, yeah, the great technique here is walk from one side of the stage to the other so you can, you, have, you can use the slide to remind you of what you were meant to say. It's bizarre. It's literally bizarre. Yeah, and, and, and your opening prologue, can you just quickly summarize that? I love it's, the fact yeah, that and, you Yeah, and I'm sure some of the, the folks on the phone have read the book. But this, this story, there are certain stories, I think, in the book which stands for tremendously important insights, and I think this is one of them. Um, true story, I had spoken at a company's leadership conference. I won't say who it is, because it's a very well-known company, and this CEO is well-known in, the, in their space, and he was presenting to, uh, it was at Disney, it was, the company wasn't Disney, but it was at the, one of the Disney conference facilities, and um, he was presenting to upwards of about 3,000 company leaders, and uh, uh, well, I had spoken during the day. I'd spoken earlier on commercial messaging and insight-based commercial messaging, and I was going to leave, and I, but I, I didn't have to fly out that day. I was sticking around to do something else with Disney the next day, and I was going to just go off and just relax for the day. And they said, many people came up to me and said, Tim, we know all about your passion. You have to stick around for this closing keynote. It's absolutely, this guy's absolutely breathtaking. He's world-class. He's amazing. I mean, they really talked this guy up. And... Um, so I, I stuck around, and Julie, he came up for the closing keynote. I mean, it was, it was Olympic gold medal class according to every category and criteria that most people have ever been taught about communication skills. So he's meant to speak for 30 minutes. He's done in 29 minutes, 56 seconds. I mean, it's, and, and he is flawlessly prepared. I don't think he had notes, but he didn't miss a word. I mean, it was beautifully articulated. Um, he's got the, the sort of consummate eye contact and body language. He's working the room. He's got the hands-free mic. He's got you know, an elegant 50-year-old you know, white male in a five ten thousand dollars suit. So he's got all that going on, the hands-free mic. I mean, he's literally the, the epitome of what we think getting it right looks like. He hasn't got a whole load of slides. He isn't going to do a slide bomb. But here's what's interesting. He had one slide which captured his topic. It stayed up the whole time, and it was the 10 things we've got to get right this year. Now, by most, I'm not in any way being critical here because I'm talking much more broadly than speech writing, but, but by most broad speech writing standards, this was an unbelievable home run. Completely coherent, clean. The 10 ideas were, were very important. They were coherent. They were the right ideas at some level. I'll come back to that. Um, but what was interesting is there was no narrative within the 10. They were 10 independent uh, items, if you like. And then he sits down, you know, and it's, it's this kind of love fest. I mean, literally standing ovation, you know, underwear is being thrown. It's this complete cosmic love fest. I could be a bit of a jerk, but I looked at it, and I knew exactly what had happened and what was going to happen. So the, the MC shuts it down within a matter of moments. This is an absolutely verbatim true story. He sits down. The MC is not going to try and cap it. So the MC is like, guys, thanks very much. See you next year. So within two or three minutes, the crowd stands to leave. I grabbed somebody who'd been in the crowd, and it wasn't, it wasn't too weird because they'd heard me speak earlier, and, and, and I said, you know, picking a name at random, you know, oh, wasn't Jonathan amazing? Oh, yeah, absolutely fantastic, absolutely incredible. And uh, I said, do you mind me asking you a question? Um, how many of the ten things do you remember? And he, he paused for a second, and he named two. Now, it's very interesting because you're probably all aware of this. The data is fairly abundant that about 15 to 20 you get about 15 to 20 percent retention of content uh, after a matter of hours from most presentations but here was that literally being borne out within I'm gonna say less than three minutes and if you go back to this okay it's the CEO 
the CEO's talk is the 10 things we've got to get right this year. I mean, if you would think there is an, there's a presentation that can, should, ought to be remembered, it would be this, and you had a 20% retention rate within a matter of moments. And what's so important is we've got to understand what happened here. Um, let me step away from the, from the anecdote for a second to give you a, an illustration. You go to a cocktail party and you're introduced to somebody. So Ian, so I run into you, Ian, say, oh, Ian, it's funny I should run into you today. Uh, oh, this is my friend Phil. We went to school together. And Ian says, hi, Phil, and Phil says, hi, Ian. And then you drift apart. This is also in the book as the explanation of the story. Um, what immediately happens? You forget his name. Now, what's happening there? Why do you forget his name? It's because the brain stores information contextually. It's not, you're not lazy when you forget somebody's name when you first meet them. Um, the brain does not work that way. The brain can't store and ret uh, retrieve intellectual orphans. So you hear this name, Phil. It comes out of the blue. And the, the brain has no way of storing that because the brain only stores information if it can place it in prior context. So if you, for example, had a brother called Phil or a son called Phil or something like that, then... Um, you would potentially have more likely of being able to remember it. But the problem is when information comes at us with no context, it's not going to be remembered. Now, we'll probably talk a little bit about PowerPoint today, but you can probably see where I'm going because the bulleted PowerPoint slide or any slide with content objects that are not strung together into a logical intellectual narrative has zero chance of being retained because the brain just doesn't work that way. It's not laziness. It's the brain just cannot store information that way. And I saw this, and I'm like, okay, A, he shouldn't have had 10. But B, there was no storyline to the 10. And so as good as everything else was, and I mean literally world class, I knew that nothing was going to stick. And lo and behold, um, everything that, that this guy had gotten right was not able to overcome what I would call a brain violation. And that gets you to the very foundation of what... The, of everything that we do. What we believe is the human brain is wired in very distinct ways. It, it wants and needs to consume information in certain ways. When you align with it, that's how you fail-proof a communication of any kind, a speech, a formal presentation, a sales meeting, a TED talk, a white paper, a blog post. And even, by the way, this will go as far as written messaging, white papers, web design, because the brain is still the brain. And so... The brain is wired in certain ways. If you align with that, you can be incredibly successful. If you fail to align with it, you cannot be successful. And nobody really understands what these rules are. And you've been taught a whole load of other rules are important, like eye contact and body language, which are borderline stupid. They're virtually irrelevant. So here you had a guy who's getting everything right in it from a traditional standpoint, and he's completely failed. Um, in terms of genuine transfer of learning because there was a, there was a problem with his architecture. His architecture was, was not right in regards to how it was going to connect with the brain. And the main point we make through that story is if you want to be an effective communicator, it's about architecture. It's not about delivery. You can get everything right in delivery, but if you get architecture wrong, you cannot, you cannot succeed. And that's exactly what, what this guy did. And it was kind of tragic. And the great tragedy really, and this is kind of what's interesting, I think, for, for any speechwriters listening to this, the great tragedy was there was a story within those 10 bullets. It shouldn't have been 10. He should have picked about five as a maximum. But there was a story that, that I think flowed through the acquisition of customers, the effective servicing of customers, the effective management of cost as you, as you kind of dealt with those customers. There was a story there. So it wasn't that there was no story. The problem was he had no idea he needed to find it because the problem we have is we don't even understand that these are the rules. And that's what I think was so interesting about that story. Um, by the way, great question. Did the audience, would the audience on their smile sheets have evaluated that presentation at a high level? Yes, absolutely they would. And what that also teaches us is audiences base their evaluation of presentations based on how entertained they felt. They don't base their evaluation based on what they learned. So here's a guy who has been told by everybody he's amazing. The scores will come back from the conference, and he will clearly be top of the class. And so he will be reinforced in everything that he's doing. It's not unpleasant. It's not an unpleasant 30 minutes. It was fun. It was engaging. But nobody learned anything because people don't even – people, and, and he won't know that because people don't actually tell you whether they've learned anything. So it's, very, it's a very interesting story. It was so much fun for me to watch it play out. And the, the real lesson of the story is that, that, A, 
delivery trumps design, and B, the essence of delivery, uh, sorry, the essence of design or architecture is architecting according to and around the rules of how the brain works. That's why our company is about message architecture. We don't own a video camera. We have some really cool delivery training, but we're not looking to bring, we're not looking to even think about hardly at all anything to do with eye contact and body language. The main thing we focus on in delivery training is precision of language such that the design that you had in the drawing room, you know, on the, draw, on the drawing table, if you like, is what you actually say on the day. The only important thing really about delivery is precision so the design you've designed actually comes out. So it's a particularly long answer to a very right. short question. But the anecdote contains within it some terrifically important insights. Right, and it gets us to the meat of your book. And obviously, in the remaining, you know, well, in about 20 minutes, I'd like to open it up to everybody. I don't know how to do this, but you've got what you call the carbon atom, the design yep. in the second half of the book that yep. sort of goes from selection and simplification of the data, yep. the right content, the right sequence, the right engagement. I doubt there's any way to cover all this, and maybe you could in five minutes, but obviously I would encourage everybody to, to pick up the book, but maybe you could give us a flavor. I notice you also say, for instance, for that executive, rather than a list of 10, one of the keys is powerfully land a small number of big ideas, and then you proceed to show, you know, which is relevant more to speech writers than anybody, yeah. is how to structure, I used to say, architects. So yeah. what elements could you share with us to... Sure. Um, I mean, I could give you sort of the lightning tour through the whole thing, but I think more valuable would be, would be to emphasize certain aspects of this as it would relate to the, the speechwriting profession. And if you go back to this foundational thesis that the human brain wants and needs to consume information in a certain way. So what are the most interesting and important aspects about that? Because there's tons of aspects of how the brain works in terms of how it processes visuals, for example, why it doesn't like bulleted or slides with words on it, lots of that stuff. But if I was going to narrow it down to one thing, the single most important thing anybody in any sphere who cares about communication needs to understand about the human brain is that it traffics in and operates at the level of ideas. The human brain operates at the level of ideas. Another way of saying this is the human brain is reductionist. If you go to any meeting, hour long, three hour long, doesn't matter, and a day later your spouse or some colleague says, hey, what was that meeting about? Your brain naturally, as a, as, a, as a function of biological process, is not going to recreate the hour. It's, if, Ian, if you said, hey, what was that meeting about? I'd say, it's kind of interesting, actually. It was about this, and it was about this, and it was about this. My brain automatically, biologically, unconsciously reduces information to a core number of ideas. Now, again, as the book mentions, probably the most powerful example of this from history. I mean, there are many, many of them, like I Have a Dream, things like that. But... One of the most interesting examples from history was the O.J. Simpson trial. If you recall, the O.J. Simpson trial, the prosecution had seven months, I mean seven months of mind-numbingly deep uh, data on what had happened in this case. And history clearly records that that seven months of testimony was undermined by one idea of eight words. And every one of you listening is already mouthing it. You know what it was. If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. If, interesting enough, we might, if you want to, come back to look at what was the linguistic form of that that made it so sticky, because there's some interesting things it was doing. But set that aside for a second. That is a classic example. You had an audience here, the jury, that was swimming in this bewildering mass of information, desperately trying to make sense of it. That's what the brain does. There's all this data, all this fact, all this crap that we present in all these presentations. And the, the brain is trying to make sense of it. And what it wants to do is boil it to a single idea. And what Cochrane did, forget the morality or ethics of this, is he gave them a unifying idea. The unifying idea is, is look, it's all about this, about the glove. If the glove doesn't fit, and ergo it wasn't his glove, then you must acquit. And that's a perfect example of how the brain is, is reductionist and operates at the level of ideas. What that leads us to is probably the single most important thing we teach. If the only thing you take away from this call is this one idea, it's that all communication succeeds, or communication succeeds when it does what I'm about to say, and it fails when it fails to do what I'm about to say, and it's this one rule of powerfully land a small number of big ideas. Powerfully land a small number of big ideas. That's not a cute phrase. It's a phrase that's 
deeply embedded in the most important truth about how the brain processes information in that it is reductionist and it seeks ideas. So what the great communicator does is give, provide the ideas that literally click into the brain in the way the brain wants them. We won't get into this, and let me, let me say this in capital letters. I am not making a point here about political affiliation, okay? I am not making a point about political affiliation. But I predicted Trump would win based on the communication output of the two campaigns. Hillary Clinton had several hundred um, uh, uh, policy papers and statements on our website. She would cover a very broad range of them in a lot of topics, a lot of talks and speeches. Like it or not, I'm not making a comment on political affiliation. Trump was perfectly adhering to the rule of powerfully land a small number of big ideas. However, you view Trump, I'm not going to make any comment either way. What I'm saying is it was not in the least surprising to me because the way his communication aligned with the way hearers, hearers were working. And that was interesting because of that particular rule. So if I go back to your original question, the carbon atom is a model which is a six-component process that takes the six most important aspects of, of alignment or misalignment with the brain, and essentially, therefore, it takes the six most egregious mistakes that we make. And what it does is it's a process. You start at the beginning with a body of content, and you finish at the end with a shockingly effective piece of communication. Now, the first of the... There are, broadly, the six are... are there are three pairs, and, and eat, there are three categoric level things you want to do and it's really simple right content right sequence right engagement which is just a businessly a business acceptable word for stickiness right content right sequence right stickiness and the 10 second tour through each is is the first thing you have to do is identify what are your big ideas and that's why I started where I did the tool we provide for that is the single most important thing we offer, the single piece of IP we protect most aggressively. We will, we will be quite aggressive with anyone who wants to try and republish or use that, but our clients or readers are able to use it. It's the pyramid of planned outcome because it is the tool from which insight or big ideas are derived. By the way, we use the word insight and big ideas synonymously, and an insight is a new conclusion a brain arrives at when presented with a new data set. So an insight is a, a conclusion you arrive at for the first time when presented with a data set. So a big idea and, a and, a, and, a, and an insight are the same thing. So the first thing you want to do is you have to figure out what are your big ideas. The remaining five are about how those get encapsulated into a piece of communication. The second piece of right content is simplification, uh, boiling and refining it to keep it within the brain's bandwidth limitations, which are very narrow. Having established in the right content, and if you like, only the right content, the second discipline of sequence is firstly sequencing the argument into a logical narrative. I won't go into that because that was the issue with that CEO because the brain can't deal with intellectual orphans. So even if you have the right content, if it's just arranged in bullets or in no logical structure, it can't be retained. And the second piece of, of, of right structure or organization is getting very, being very smart about what your opening looks like and how you anchor the presentation and the argument we're always going to make is you always want to anchor in a customer or audience priority particular customer or audience problem and so now you have the right content structured and organized in the right way and then the final two pieces come under the umbrella of right stickiness I could talk all day about these they're fascinating the first aspect of, of stickiness is kind of immediate stickiness and um, as many of you guys listening in know, the right use of visual aid, story, metaphor, artifact, uh, or kinesthetic items, so something you can touch, um, will raise the stickiness of any argument. And the basic reason is that fact and data are dealt with, processed in the left brain, but where storage is very weak. So you tend to not remember data well. That's why you can't remember phone numbers. But information that's processed in the right brain is much stickier. That's where the main centers of memory are. It's also, by the way, where you make decisions. So um, the right use of visuals and story and uh, metaphor are right brain engages. So what we teach our clients is how do you take your big idea and plant it in a balanced way in both left and right brain. One of the most foundational mistakes we make in communication, and this will be very true in Silicon Valley, 
is we're Western rationalists. We are all Western rationalists. We believe as long as I make the perfect, coherent, rational argument, I'll get the decision I want. So we default to a very fact and data-based approach. The problem with that is that violates the way the brain works. Most of the presentations, particularly sales messages we, we build with clients, end up pivoting on a critical illustration, metaphor, story, or visual, um, because that yields the stickiness in the right brain. And then the final piece of the model, the sixth piece, is um, what we would call enduring stickiness. And it's the use of and the importance of the physical deliverable that accompanies any presentation. Right now, the physical deliverable, if it even exists, is a PowerPoint deck. That is worse than useless. I was talking to a client yesterday whose typical sales presentations are accompanied by a 100 to 120 slide deck. The ability of anybody to reuse that later um, is essentially zero. They're never going to look at it. Now, let me give you a very quick detour. What is one of, if not the most important words in communication? It's the word retellability. Retellability is the ability of the person you've presented to to retell the story later. It is the standard to which all communication should aspire because it has to stick in the brain differently for that to happen. It's all very well leaving a presentation going, well, that was kind of interesting, and then you've forgotten it five minutes later. Retellability means it's stuck in the brain in a very different way. Now, why does that matter? It matters everywhere, but it's everything in sales because in most buying situations, the client is going to have a buying group of between five or seven people, but the seven sales guys never get to meet with those seven. They meet with two or three. A week later, your value proposition gets discussed. If you're not retellable, you're screwed. The best you can hope for is to be asked back to present again, and that's often what happens, and that's good, but what most often happens is the sales pursuit dies. Retellability is the single most important thing in sales, and you're now butting up against some fundamental, lim fundamental limitations of the human brain, and that's why physical collateral and the creation of a document which is insight-driven, simple, uh, narrative contain only the most important fact and data is so key and this thing looks completely different to a PowerPoint deck so we completely believe in the value of a document but I'd rather die than do it through the lens of a, of a PowerPoint slide deck so anyway that's I know that's again longer than you asked for but I'm kind of passionate about this but that's the model if you can potentially visualize it the book unpacks two-thirds of the book as you know unpack the model in great detail and by the way there's a software tool you get with the book called the Message Architect Software Tool, or MAST, and that contains all the tools in a, in a holistic uh, but linear platform. So in other words, you work through the process, and it creates a blueprint for a presentation at the back end. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I did a review of the book on my blog and did say that that tool itself is kind of worth the, worth the price of the book. But yeah, just so people know, I, I, while you were reviewing that, uh, you actually covered chapters 8 through 14, 150 pages of your book in about eight minutes. So <laughs> whatever you touched on, people should know, like each one of those six elements of the, of the um, carbon atom, you've not only explained it you know, in, in great, much more detail, but you give examples. Uh, yeah. I love the example, I'm just looking at random here. You've got these random digits, XCN, NPH, DFB, <laughs> ICI, that nobody could remember. Yeah. And then you just move the sequence and you end up with CNN, PHD, FBI, CIA. Yeah. So yeah. showing how sequencing is relevant. And you did briefly touch, and I think this will be my last kind of leading question for you, and then everybody on the phone should know, get ready, because uh, we definitely want you to have a chance to engage with Tim, and, and we'll do that in a minute. But just to make it super clear, uh, Tim, you mentioned briefly that, and you, you go into the book in detail about this, about the value of collateral handouts what you're talking about is printed material yep. that the audience takes away with them, right? So in yep. other words, not everything needs to be in the PowerPoint. Is that correct? <clears throat> yes, I, I would argue, you know, as you really get into the, the, the deep part of the pool here, any, any communicator essentially has three tools at their disposal. I'm slightly oversimplifying, but you have your narrative comments, what you're going to say. You have your visuals that you're going to put on the screen. And you have some kind of document that you're going to give your audience. Now, I'll say as an aside, I would never present in any setting without a document. And we can come back to that if, if you want to. 
the fundamental flaw of what most people do today, I'm not anti-PowerPoint. The problem isn't PowerPoint. The problem is how PowerPoint's used at some level. But, it, but in fact, that's not quite true. As Tufty and others have said, PowerPoint default, it gives you permission to do some really stupid things. When PowerPoint gave you the default of, of, of creating slides and then click slides to, to make handout, it's given you the single biggest mistake you can make, and it's telling you that's okay. Because what it's saying is they are aligned in purpose. They're not. Think of it this way. The purpose of a visual aid is to visualize and visually reinforce a point being taught. It is not to restate the words the audience is already hearing. It is to visually reinforce a point that's being taught. And what you're trying to do is take a point that you're making. We're going to get really into the deep end of the water here. I'm going to make a point orally. It's going to be processed in your auditory cortex. I then present a complementary, and even better perhaps, an allegorically complementary visual. So I'll give you an example. It's in the book. I might say, the problem, one problem we have as communicators is we lack restraint. We lack guardrails. We just try and throw everything into our presentations, hoping something will stick. The visual I'll show as I make that point, is a carved vomiting pumpkin. Have you ever seen one where you get all the seeds coming out of the mouth? It's pretty gross. Car you know, Google vomiting pumpkin. You'll see, I think, the images in the book. That's the correct use of a visual. What I've now done is planted the same idea in a different place in your brain. Your brain immediately is wired to create a neural pathway between them, and that idea is more likely to stick. Now, then I have the similar point or the same point in a handout document which is now processed in a third place in your brain because where the place in your brain where you where you process written material where you're reading is neither your auditory nor your visual cortex passes through your visual cortex which processes it and sends it to your rear left brain which is where reading is is processed so now i've taken an idea and i placed it in three places in the brain so what you want to do is you want to understand the complementary role of narrative, visual, and handouts and use that to your advantage. But what most people do is they put bullets on slides, they print the slides as a handout, and they just read the slides on screen. So you've taken the three circles and kind of collapsed them. There's no multidimensional engagement of the brain. So that the umbrella point which I want to, by which I want to answer your question is you have to understand the relative role of the three and PowerPoint kind of forces you to collapse them. So that's when moronic speaking coaches who tell you to you know, walk to the other slide of the side of the stage so you can re read your bullet and see what you wanted to say, they're already wrong because they're taught, they've already identified that they want you to have words on screen, which you should not have. Now that leads you to the document. So the purpose of a visual is, is this. The purpose of a visual is to visually complement a big idea or a teaching point. The purpose of a handout is to provide a permanent documentary record of the meeting in brackets, which would allow somebody to retell the story. Well, that's going to be a completely different animal or beast to a, to a PowerPoint deck. It's typically a one-sheet. It could be a bifold. If there's a couple of examples in the book. You might go with sort of a laminated, sort of infographic-type looking thing. These are not 100-page books. These are digests. These are synthesized documents. I have given a lot of presentations at leadership conferences. I created a no, I had no slides. I was using visuals that supported key ideas, and the main thread of my argument, the big ideas and the key supporting data, was in a handout. To this day, to this day, I see that handout pinned on people's cubes or offices. It's seven years later because you've now taken a worthless document, which is a PowerPoint deck, which people throw away, and you've converted it into a synthesized, crisp, tight, logically structured teaching document. And that is so important because at some level, at some point, you run into the fundamental limits of the human brain, however amazing any presentation is. The decay three months, six months, nine months later, you just can't overcome that. The human brain stores very little over the long term. You know, you think about a few childhood memories. I mean, it, it really isn't stored that much over the long term. If I want somebody to really get my message and for it to really be viral and really stick, you cannot understate the value of the supporting document. We have several clients who think are, are the sixth piece of our model, the, this, doc, this doctrine of supporting materials, is the most important thing that we teach. I'll tell you a fantastic 30-second anecdote. 
one of our clients was scheduled to make a major presentation in the UK to a client where nine executives were supposed to attend. Six of them couldn't, for very legitimate reasons, they were snowed out. There was a horrible snowstorm. Six of them couldn't make it. They made the presentation to three of them. The three took the stack of handouts, which were very simple, bifold, two-page documents, and uh, the client didn't know what was going to happen. Well, guess what? The three were able to retell the story, were re create the sales presentation to the other six and they got a call about two weeks later saying hey we've decided to move ahead um, how much material we want to do a pilot of this particular piece of equipment how many units can we have and how many places can we pilot it for 246,000 pounds and by the way the decision makers were in the six not in the three now I want you to contrast that with McKinsey data that says in most sales organizations, it takes 12 to 24 months for the sales guys to be able to tell the story. It takes a year for a sales guy to be able to tell the story. Here, the client, who's not paid to do this, was able to learn and retell the story at one hearing. That's what happens when you create true brain-to-line communication. And that doesn't matter if that's sales messaging or executive leadership communications, this is the, the value of the model, and specifically in that case, the specific value of the integrated collateral. That's great, Tim. Well, it's, we have exactly 30 minutes left on the call. And at this point, anybody who's been listening, thank you for joining us. You've heard from Tim Pollard for the last 40 minutes. Um, I know, Brian, you've been reading the book. But anybody, go ahead, press star six to unmute yourself because everybody's on mute in case somebody was driving. And uh, please uh, chime in and, and make comments, uh, opinions about what you've heard, uh, or ask Tim a question. So, so Tim, this is Brian. And, um, I, I have a, a question for you. I think, you know, for all of us who do this professionally, you know, you're, you're speaking to a receptive audience, right? We, <laughs> I would we, hope so. <laughs> we believe it, and we want to go preach this as well. In the book, you mention um, a lot of the resistance you see to why people do things the way you do. What, what's your advice on overcoming resistance from very senior leaders who just like it the way they like it? That's a terrific question. Uh, that's a, such a great question. Uh, it's so insightful because of, of where the resistance comes from. There's a phrase we use a lot with our clients, and we use it early and often because we need them to understand this. We say this, what we teach is not difficult intellectually. It's difficult culturally. Um, there are guys that almost literally shake with fear the first time they stand up without a bunch of PowerPoints to read. Um, so can it be overcome? Yes. Let me, let me tell you how we've seen that. Number one, um, the thing that will most powerfully lead to organizational change is the results that come from whoever the pioneer group is. Now, again, the sales is a great laboratory. Sales guys do nothing if it doesn't benefit them. So they don't want to change. We work with so many clients, and, and almost by definition, we don't change all of their sales messaging overnight. Um, I'll give you a great story. We started working with Rockwell. And Rockwell said, we just want to work in five business lines, five business areas to rebuild five sales pitches. We did the core workshop, which is how we start. So we teach the one-day workshop always, and then we start doing the consulting around those five messages. We're only a week or two in. It takes eight weeks to go from you know, crap messaging to finish messaging. It takes eight weeks. It's pretty cool. We're about a week in. And I had thought what would normally happen would happen, which is at eight weeks, we do the review of the new messaging. People see it. They go, well, that's kind of interesting, and it sort of starts to get traction. Within one week, before the new messaging has even debuted, word had traveled enough between sales organizations, like this is amazing, this is what we should be doing, that in fact, we now have 13 separate business units at Rockwell working simultaneously. And the last several of those 13, about eight of them, in fact, did kick off before the first ones had concluded. So the way you get momentum is, you know, success, what does it say, you know, success has many fathers, failure is an orphan. You know, as soon as something's working, um, everybody wants to get on the bandwagon. Now, we see this a lot when we're helping executives communicate more effectively. Uh, good example, recent companies leadership conference, they had asked us to work with a couple of executives. 
and um, they were going to speak at the company's leadership conference. They were going to be t two of them, in fact, there were, and they were two out of about eight speakers who were going to keynote across this leadership conference. And it's funny, it's really hilarious, actually. We were brought in because, like, yeah, these are the guys who don't do it very well. We need to sort of get them up to par. The guys stand up. They deliver a crisp, insight-driven keynote supported by a, a wonderful, you know, in one case, sort of a half-page, one-page handout. These guys are now by far the best speakers on the roster. I mean, they've arrived at sort of a TED speaker type level. And the other six executives who were sort of not deemed to have needed this are like, oh, crap, what just happened? And guess what? We're now talking to the company about a broader engagement because they see the difference. They see, it, they see the way it works. So I think there's an example both within the sales and the, and the executive ranks. There is such a visible substantial measurable difference uh, and I know this sounds horribly self-serving but I just I just can't not say this there's such a substantial and observable difference between the typical speaker and the typical executive who speaks and the guys that we've trained who are embracing this model that once you have that beachhead others will tend to come along with it so the first piece of advice or the first thought I would say is um, find a place to kick it off. We, we have never worked across the board from day one with any client, but we have almost no clients where we, having started, they don't see the other places where they want to apply it. So you almost want to let the, let the product do its own talking, as it were. Let the, the results uh, show themselves. The other thing as well is, is what's really interesting about this is that there is resistance culturally, but it's really more an issue of just comfort. If you ask anybody, you know, are you happy? with our addiction to PowerPoint? No. Do you think it's the right way to communicate? No. The problem isn't that people think what they're doing now works. The problem is they don't know what to put in its place. That's the real issue. I haven't found an executive yet, anywhere, in seven years, who's defended what they're doing. What I find is executives who say, yeah, but, but what would I do in its place? The book talks about this quite a lot, which is, which is you can't just kick away the PowerPoint stool. That's what Amazon did, and it created to some extent a problem, which is, you know, bulleted PowerPoints are crap. We hate them. Stop doing them. And it's like, okay, is there a part two to this, which is, could you please start doing this? Now, Amazon actually found their way, funnily enough, to a handout or collateral way of, of, of improving, but I don't think they've gone all the way yet. Um, so again, I think another part of overcoming resistance is you can't just you know, shout into the wind saying, this, this is horrible. What you can do is stand up and say, yeah, this is horrible. Let me show you a better way of doing it. I think the most, the, some of the most common feedback we get from our workshops is, I always knew what we were doing wasn't working. Well, I knew it wasn't working. I always knew it wasn't the best. I just never had anybody put together for me the, a holistic process by which we could replace it. You know, people do pick up principles, oh, maybe I should be simpler, maybe I should use more visuals, you know, maybe I should kind of focus more. I mean, so people have heard snippets, but they've never seen a, a really robust holistic process. So I think, I think going in there, uh, you know, so those are probably two of the bigger ideas. The first one is, is let your initial wins carry you. And the second one is, is it's the fact that you can show people there is a real process that works here, not just, you know, criticizing the old for the sake of it. That's great. Thanks, Brian. Any follow-up to that from you, Brian? No, I think uh, I think that's great advice. I, I think you know, in the absence of having Tim give a workshop, the key then is just you know, you've got to find that initial victory, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I won't hide the ball here. That that it's you know, the book is like a golf lesson. You can only get so much from it. The the, the fun thing would be put a bunch of people in the room and do the workshop and see yeah. the degree of change that comes coming out of that. But that's that's you know, obviously another side of the conversation. Yeah. Great. Hey, Tim, this is, um, Brad Whitworth from uh, HPE and uh, former Cisco and former HP at one point. Do you have a poster child out there that you would say, you know, if you want to see somebody who's practicing this stuff, go watch this TED Talk, go watch this CEO, somebody who embraces, maybe, I'm, I'm sure they probably didn't do the training, but embraces some of the principles you've been talking about, and so we can go, ah, okay, that would be a great one. Um, 
You know, obviously most of the, the, the folks we work with aren't really working in the, in the public domain. Um, so the, the presentation they're giving are, are internal. Um, there are a couple of the TED speakers we've trained. I mean, it, one of the interesting things is the, the promotion rate from TEDx to the main TED stage, I think, is about one in 700. We're batting about one in 14. So that's, that's an indicator. I'm trying to remember. I actually don't do our TED speaker coaching. We have a team that does that. Um, there are a couple of TED talks. If you want that follow-up, I can, I can figure out which would be a couple of the, the most interesting TED talks that we coached um, where you would see the principles applied. That would be very easy to do and just, just find one that you, you would find interesting. Um, within the, uh, we don't generally work with executives who are doing too much in the kind of public domain space. And we do, by the way, have one restriction, which is we won't work in the political arena. We're not, we're not going to align ourselves over with one political side or other. We've had several requests from different congressmen or prospective congressmen and senators to help them, and we, we politely decline that because we don't we're not going to take a political view, and I don't want to be known as either, you know, one side or the other. Um, so we don't really, I don't really have that. We don't really have any, you know, some of our clients aren't really working in the public space, but there are some TED speaker, uh, TED talks we could point you to. Okay. Uh, well, if you can send those, I'll add them to the, uh, the meetup page where this yeah. talk is. Actually, you don't need to do that. If you look on our website, look at our executive communication and TED training. I think, because I haven't looked at recent, that very recent, I think there are two TED talks on that page uh, profiled with some comments from the TED speakers about how the coaching went. So you'd probably find that kind of interesting. Oh, great. Uh, any, anybody else? We've got four other people on the call who've been quiet. Uh, any comments or opinions or suggestions or questions for Tim? No, I'll give you a minute to think. One thing I'd like to, to contrast, we kind of began the conversation talking about the unnamed CEO who didn't land any big ideas and always was an example of fail proof, mm -hmm. uh, not fail-proof communications. You also mentioned in the book, and you even have a photograph of yourself with the lady, uh, Eva Kaur, who oh, yeah. Yeah. you could perhaps just give us, a, give us a quick thumbnail on why she's an example of a... Yeah. Somebody with a very compelling story. And actually, funnily enough, what, it, it's a great answer to the previous question that I should have remembered. The gentleman that asked the previous question, in my opinion, one of, if not the most effective communicators I've ever seen is this lady, Eva Kaur. And um, there are YouTubes of her. She's spoken at Google and, uh, and other places. Uh, she's become a really dear friend. And, and the basic thumbnail story on her is... Um, you know, she will come up on stage. She's 83 years old. Uh, she's been a realtor in Indiana for roughly 45 years. I mean, obviously retired now. About four foot tall. Um, it's sort of dumpy in a nondescript sort of blue suit. And she will sit at a table and not quite slouch over, fold over into a microphone, but kind of close to that. And she'll talk unbroken with no visual aids for about three hours. And you can hear a pin drop. And by the way, anyone on this call, if you can hear Eva before she finally can't do this anymore, as a communicator, you have to do it. I would, I would fly to see her if you can. Just check out her calendar or call her organization candles. And so, so here's a woman, and you're not exactly excited by my initial description, right? Um, she's, she's got a strong Transylvanian accent. She sounds like Dracula. She's from the Forder, former sort of the Hungarian-Romanian border. But what's interesting about her is the other side of the story. She's a Holocaust survivor. And of course, that to some extent makes it inherently interesting. Um, she isn't just any Holocaust survivor either. She went to Auschwitz specifically, and more importantly, she had a twin sister, and so she was uh, uh, selected to survive. Her parents and siblings were killed in the gas chamber within hours of arriving. She was selected to survive, but only so they could perform medical experiments on her. This was the Dr. Mengele thing. And um, what's so incredible about her is she somehow, with no scientific background or training or you know, decade of research, which, which was sort of more my story, she intuited her way to everything that we teach. Her 
communication pivots on and orients around three big ideas. And all of her illustrations point to, so they either lead to or emanate from, those big ideas. Um, so one of them, for example, is whatever you face in life, never, ever, ever give up. And one of the stories she tells that gets to that, it's the right brain treatment of the idea, is how uh, one morning, she's a 10-year-old girl, right? One morning, she, she gets, she's in her barracks, she kind of gets up, she goes to this horrible makeshift latrine to kind of splash some water on her face. And I, I think the story is in the book. In, in the latrine, she's sort of stepping over the, the naked, dead bodies of several children. And the, the reason for that is they died in the night. The, the harshness of the environment meant that they had to reclaim their clothing. And so the other children would leave these kids in the latrine. And then the guards the next morning would, would take the bodies away and they'd go to the crematorium. And um, she's making this presentation. And, and, and everyone, I mean, I have two daughters. And I, and I am, like everyone, thinking, I don't even know how to think about this story. I don't even know how to process this story. And then, and then she says these immortal words, essentially, which, by the way, is, a, if you want just a tip, one of the most important lines that should appear in any speech more than once is, why am I telling you this? That, that line is the signal that you, you know how to move from data or illustration to application, from data to insight, from what something is to what something means. Look at most of the presentations we're involved in and build. They're full of data, but, but you don't tell somebody really what the data means or how to interpret it, what the insight or the big idea is. And left alone, people will draw any conclusions they like if you don't draw them for them. And so Eva says, now why am I telling you this? And then she says, you know, in Auschwitz, dying was easy. Living took every ounce of strength I had, from which emanates the bigger idea, which is whatever you face in life, never, ever, ever give up. And so here is a woman, and, and you can talk to pretty much anybody who heard Eva speak, and they'll remember those big ideas weeks or months later. She doesn't use a hand. She does not use a handout. She, she just leaves, leaves you with those big ideas. Now, the reason that story is such an interesting foil to the CEO story is here's a woman who, by traditional standards, is getting almost everything in delivery wrong. So by traditional standards, we say she's failed because the traditional standard is the delivery standard. But she is stunningly successful in terms of transfer of learning. Why? Because she's getting everything architecturally right. And the prologue of the book is the two stories, and it contrasts them and says, hang on a minute, one guy meets, you know, one, one guy has kind of hit everything that the rules say you need to hit and has failed. This woman has broken all the rules but has succeeded. And I think the last line of the prologue is, it looks like we got the wrong rules. And that's what's so interesting about those two stories. Again, what she teaches is the, the supremacy of design over delivery and particularly architecture that aligns with the brain. But most specifically in her case is this, this powerful landing of big ideas. By the way, I said something incorrect. I said she doesn't use a handout. She doesn't always, but she actually has a bookmark. A handout's a bookmark, and the bookmark simply says the three ideas. And it's, uh, it's, it's really funny. So... Actually, I realized later, I didn't see it when I first heard her speak, I realized later that, in fact, she adheres to the entire doctrine we teach because she does have a handout, and it's just, it's just a bookmark with three big ideas on it. Oh, that's great, Tim. Um, yeah, that, that, those definitely contrast in the prologue very effectively, and that's what grabbed me for the rest of the book uh, as well. Any, any final uh, comments from anybody on the phone? Star six to unmute yourself. I've, I've got one more. Um, you know, I noticed as I was reading the book, elements of other things that I've, I've heard and seen over the years. I, I've seen elements of, of change management models. Um, I, I recognize the Heath. I recognize some of the, the brain science Simon Sinek talks about. What, what would you say overall are the, the greatest influences uh, that you've had as you've, you've kind of built the model and developed your work? That's a, that's a great question. Um, it, it isn't common for people to say, you know, I've seen elements of this before. And I, I, think, the, the, I think arguably the real strength of what we do is the 
the holistic nature with which it's all brought together. Because people go, yeah, I should use more visuals, and I should probably, you know, slides aren't great, and, and maybe I should focus more, as I was saying. Um, the journey that got me here is a whole different discussion, but it is fascinating. Um, I drew a lot on neuroscience, but then um, I drew a lot on understanding theories of literature, original theories of rhetoric. Um, there are interesting work in the in the field of um, you know stand-up comedy, well, how does stand-up comedy work and its importance in in teaching precision of language. So I think the one thing it sounds like you've picked that up from the book is that it's drawn from a very very eclectic range of sources. You mean to read a book like Made to Stick and there's very obvious things that come out of that. But then you read a book called you know, The Master and His Emissary on Left and Right Brain Function by Ian McGilchrist and you get some really important insights um, around that. The other the place I think is what, what maybe wasn't clear from earlier in the conversation. For over 10 years at the Corporate Executive Board, my job was to convert immensely complex bodies of research into speeches that would be 35,000 words, would be you know, 8 till 4 p.m. or 9 till 4 p.m. across a six, seven hour period. And I think what, you know, everything in traditional presentation skills training would say you can't do that. You can't take a head of sales of Cisco and, and expect to hold their attention for seven or eight hours. And so I think one of the driving influences for me was well, like, well, okay, but that's my job. We were able to do exactly that. We were able to have spellbinding day-long meetings that absolutely engage people from start to finish. And, and it was the honing of that over many years. And I was, I was pretty good at that. I was the best or one of the best, if not the best, at corporate executive board at doing that. It, funnily enough, got me to a lot of the practical answers before I'd understood the brain science underpinnings of them. In other words, I had gotten to a point where understanding a powerful metaphorical visual was stickier, really some, in some ways through trial and error, than other forms of visual. It wasn't until later that I started to understand the role, the, the way the brain uses allegory, um, that, that sort of the scientific justification, if you like, or explanation came a little bit later. So I think it was, it's a very, very eclectic journey. I'll give you an interesting example. Um, You'll love this. Most of you on the call probably don't love Shakespeare. I don't know if Ian does. If I asked you to name any famous Shakespearean speech, I know exactly what they would be. You know, to be or not to be, that is the question. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by the son of York. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Now, what's interesting is, of, of the immense amount of material Shakespeare produced, why are those sticky? you notice something in common of those three? They're antithetical. Antithesis, or the contrasting of one idea against the, uh, another, is, and I talk about this at length in the book, is one of the stickiest things you can do. It's one of the stickiest things. The brain adores, chews on antithesis like an old bone. And so when I present you with two contrasting ideas, they are very, very sticky to the brain. Now, Go back into history. Do you find that showing up in history outside of Shakespeare? Yes. Give me liberty or give me death. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And I think the book says, my favorite man, Winston Churchill, and the famous triple antithesis, never in the field of human conflict, was so much owed by so many to so few. And by the way, that's the closure of my earlier point of why did the Johnny Cochran phrase stick so well? Lots of reasons, one of which was it was antithetical. If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. It's the presentation of two contrasting ideas. And that comes from simply a study of Shakespeare and an observation that if, if you Google what are the ten most famous or most memorable Shakespearean speeches, what do you find? Each one of those is filled with antitheses, leading you to believe that antithesis tends to be sticky, attractive, and memorable to the brain. So it's probably on a helpful, an unhelpful answer, because I think I'm a naturally very curious person, and there hasn't probably been one single source that's influenced me, rather than drawing from a very wide range of things that I've read and encountered and studied. So the book, I think, brings it all together, but it, it, if you could conceive of the, the library of nonsense underneath it, which, which led to it, um, it, it you'd, you'd be hard to imagine because the, the breadth of you know, formal and informal investigation that got to this has been just huge. 
and if I can add to that, I was pleased to see uh, early on at Marchcom on page 72, you said your favorite author is Alain de Botan, who I've yeah. enjoyed, and talk about somebody who's eclectic. He, yeah. he's, he's, he's written on everything from travel to art and the yeah. news. And very, if people aren't familiar with him, he's uh, quite stimulating. Swelling well, writer. I mean, his, his, his written English is the most beautiful you would ever read. And um, his book, The Art of Travel, it contains some very interesting insights to how we think and how travel influences the way we think. So not, not tourism as much as the way yeah. travel touches our brains. It's really interesting stuff. Well, I, I, read, I read a book of his last October called The News, which motivated me right in the middle of the presidential election cycle to go on a fast for about six or eight weeks where I didn't listen to or follow the news at all. It drove everybody I knew crazy because <laughs> I had no idea what was happening. But Interesting. Uh, I haven't anyway. read that. Read, read his book on status, that called Status Anxiety. Uh-huh. It's really interesting. His book on architecture, The Architecture of Happiness, also talks about, a little bit about how the brain intersects with architectural surroundings. He's a fascinating yeah. guy. He's a philosopher yeah. and just the most beautiful writer. Definitely. Well, Tim, I want to thank you very much for, uh, for this call. Um, I said people can get a hold of you. Is it Tim? at O-R-A-T-I-U-M dot com. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope this has been helpful. It's been a fun, a fun conversation. It's such an interesting terrain we all live and work in. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I think what we're doing is pushing the boundaries a little bit. And, and so I think people who want to find ways to advance the way they think and work, I think will uh, hopefully enjoy intersecting with this material. Um, I think you'll find the book very helpful. Um, unapologetically, would love to chat to you about how do we do broader leadership training? How could you bring this in at a Cisco or Renault or somewhere like that? Um, obviously, that would be nice for us, but that isn't the, the primary purpose of the call. But if you have any other questions or any, any way you'd like to interact, then just uh, shoot me an email, and uh, we'd love to connect with you. Okay. Well, thanks, Tim, and thanks, everybody else, and, and enjoy the rest of your, uh, your Thursday here. 